Morning. Uh, welcome to Neighborhood Bible Church. It's good to see you this morning. Um, be a little awkward if I was here by myself. Just preached to myself this morning, so I'm glad you're here worshiping with us. And uh, and there's just a fun buzz when there's baptisms going on, and we got that happening this morning. We're going to open God's Word. We're going to do some uh, some more singing, and loved having the kids in here. You know, we just talked about wants and desires. Two of the songs we just talked about talked about what our wants are, what our desires are, and that sort of a thing. And, um, you know, I got thinking about desires a little bit. My, uh, my four-year-old went to preschool last, last year, and she was quite thrilled that she got to go to school because she has three older siblings who get to go to school every day, and so she felt quite important and quite excited um, when she went to do that. And they had a little yearbook that they put together, and in the yearbook, um, it asked these... <laughs> three- and four-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, um, I mean, you're just looking for a good time. That's what you want to do. You want to ask three- and four-year-olds that question. So um, we were just looking at this yearbook the other day again, and we're on the couch just cracking up. I'm going to just share just a couple of answers with you uh, from this, okay? So here's, here's um, Ava. Ava wants to be a ballerina. Now, a ballerina, pretty popular answer, yeah, you can guess that one. Noah wants to be big. Here's Vivian. I want to be a kitten. Contrasting that with Trevor, who says, I want to be a dragon. There's Riley, who wants to be a race car driver. And then this is kind of convenient. There's Max V, who wants to be a race car. So you just pair those two up, and that would be, uh, that would be good. Now contrast Max V with Max J, who wants to be a donut. So, big aspirations there. Um, this, one's, this one's fantastic. There's little Matt, who wants to be a magician and have an orange garbage truck. So, I mean, really, why, why pursue being a magician if you can't have the garbage truck with it? Uh, Navya wants to be an elephant. Um, Nikhil wants to be a monster. Uh, Rachel wants to be a witch and a daddy. Huh. Uh, Chaitanya wants to be a flower and a horse. So now we're just, I mean, we're, we're way out there. And then this really cute little girl named Tegan said, I want to be a mom. Not cool. Man, she got the right answer. That's my daughter, okay? Not a witch and a daddy, because that would have been... We would have just gone over some more things if that was the case. So now this isn't a rhetorical question. I want some feedback here. Think back to what you wanted to be when you were four years old. Okay? Maybe you didn't have a specific thing. Maybe no one ever wrote it down for you. But certainly you wanted to be something when you were kind of a kid growing up. And um, let me just ask you this question. Why, why do things change? Uh, so you're a little kid. You want to be something when you grow up. Um, just fire some answers out at, out at me. Why, why might one day this guy not want to be a donut anymore, for instance? Like, what would change? Why, why, why is it that things change for our, our desires? Because you asked this kid, what? What? Yeah, pay rent. Yeah, rent changes a ton of things. What else? The reality of being what it is. Yeah, you thought a donut was good, and it is, but to eat, and that's just a bad ending. What else? What else changes? Lots of what? Peer pressure. peer pressure. Yeah, peer pressure can change things. Absolutely. You start going. 
What? We learn more. Information changes. Perspective changes, right? So our wants, we can really, really want something. And then sometimes they change over time, right? And I want you to think about this. As children of faith, the exact same principle applies. We can really, really want something. There was this country singer who wore a massive hat and had a big belt buckle who said, I thank God for unanswered prayers. And his point was that sometimes we ask for things from God even, and we become a child of faith, and we want something, but it changes over time as maybe more information comes along, or we grow and we mature as our perspective changes, as we figure out the cost of life and what it is that, that, that we're asking for. Uh, this last week, in fact, on Wednesday, um, Rob Collins, who's often singing up here, and Julie, who helps with the children's uh, ministry, had their baby. And uh, little Milan was born. And as of Wednesday, I talked to Rob again yesterday, and I forgot to ask him, but as of Wednesday, they didn't have a, a middle name yet. So um, you could pray for them that they would know what the middle name is. Uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. They landed on Elizabeth. Okay, so Milan Elizabeth was born. And we got to go to, uh, to, to Kaiser Santa Teresa and hold little Milan. It was a, just a joyful thing. And, you know, you, you're holding this baby, and it's just brand new, and it's so fun. Like, that's just such a cool thing. And you know that as parents, um, all parents just have aspirations for their children, huh? I mean, we just we want the best for them, and we want, we want things to turn out well for them, and, and we want to train them along, along those lines. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes things change. This is a... This is a quote here from this, these demotivator slides I have. Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly, uh, as is the case for this poor salmon who had a long trek back and, and ended in the mouth. Um, I say that not to make light of this, but, but life changes things, doesn't it? Time goes on. Uh, some of us maybe have caused our parents immense grief by just the choices we've made and the, the life that we've lived. Some of us with younger kids, I have younger kids right now, and we're just praying. We're going, God, they're in your hands, and help me do the best I can with what I have right now. Um, we, got a, we got an email from some friends of ours the day after visiting Rob on Wednesday. On Thursday, we got an email from some friends of ours we went to China with. And they were fellow adoptive parents. And, and the last night, us, Becky and I, and Cassie, and these two other couples of the 18, we all went out to dinner together, just the, the three couples and our children. And um, it was just a joyful time. We're, we're, we're there in Guangzhou, and, and we're all about to go home. We're all just tired from the long trip. We're filled with aspirations for our children. And, um, and this couple uh, emailed us yesterday saying that their, their biological toddler that they had left for a couple of weeks, passed away. And, um, and you guys, in, in one day, in one 24-hour period, I just went from holding a brand-new baby um, to just this horrible news and this horrible void and all the questions that are there. And to my knowledge, this couple wasn't a Christian. We got to talk about our faith a little bit and share. But they did ask for our prayers, and so we're praying for them. Um, I bring that up to say this, that living is very, very risky, isn't it? It just is. I mean, little Milan has no idea what's in store for her. There are some incredible highs coming. There's some really, really tough lows coming. And, um, and loving is probably even riskier. You know, just, just living and loving are, are risky business, mainly because of this. So little of what's out there is in our control. We just have so little control of what's happening. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4 this morning. And this is another great passage. And I'm excited at what I believe God has 
to share this morning. I put this on the screen for you so you can ponder it. Because the passage we're going to look, look at this morning deals with this. Just looking at this question, what, what would a father do for a dying child, a dying son? And that's the subject matter that we find ourselves in. This is a story um, really of a father's desperation. That's what we're going to read about. It's also the story of an, of an unbeliever coming in contact with Jesus. And then we're also going to see how does Jesus respond both to unbelief and to belief. And we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. As I read this passage this morning, I'm going to read it from a, um, a paraphrase translation. And I want you just to get the story of it. And you can follow along in your own Bibles. But I want this question to kind of hang in the air this morning as, as I read this. Starting in verse 43 of John chapter 4 to the end of the chapter, it says this, After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus knew well from experience that a prophet is not respected in the place where he grew up. So when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, but only because they were impressed with what he had done in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Not that they really had a clue about who he was or what he was up to. Now he was back in Cana of Galilee, the place where he made water into wine. Meanwhile, in Capernaum, there was a certain official from the king's court whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and asked that he come down and heal his son who was on the brink of death. Jesus put him off. Unless you people are dazzled by a miracle, you refuse to believe. But the court official wouldn't be put off. Come down. It's life or death for my son. Verse 50, Jesus simply replied, Go home. Your son lives. The man believed the bare word Jesus spoke and headed home. On his way back, his servants intercepted him and announced, Your son lives. He asked them what time he began to get better. And they said the fever broke yesterday afternoon at about 1 o'clock. The father knew that that was the very moment Jesus had said, Your son lives. That clinched it. Not only he, but his entire household believed. This was now the second sign Jesus gave after having come from Judea into Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for the picture of your son. And God, this morning, I ask that our hearts and our minds would be yielded to what you are saying to us. I pray, God, uh, this morning that you would help me to communicate that the authority by which I'm speaking, the authority by which we exist as a church, is found here in your word. And we submit to it. We yield to it. I pray, God, that you would take um, the words said, the atmosphere here this morning, the picture of baptism later, and use it for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes when you're reading, uh, by the way, there's some notes to, to kind of follow along inside your bulletin. I, I'd invite you to kind of pull those out. We're going to blast through those. Um, just a reminder that we have um, on here uh, just some community group questions for you, a, a verse to memorize as a family or as an individual. Um, and then also just what the passage is coming up week by week so you can kind of read ahead and know where we're going and have your heart prepared for that. I came across a really cool website um, this week, and it's uh, basically as you're going through and you're reading these different places, it's, 
it's helpful to pull out you know, a map and just go, where is this place? And this guy came from Capernaum. Well, where's that? I don't know where that is. And, and just see like, what's, what's kind of going on. I took a little screenshot here, uh, BibleMap.org. You can type in the passage, John chapter 4, and then it pulls up Cana. You click on Cana, it shows you right in a Google map where it's at. Gives you a little write-up of everything on Cana in the Bible, and I'm just like, man, I had my old like college, you know, Bible atlas out. You know, I'm like, how old school am I? You know, I'm like, blowing off dust and turning pages. That's very old school. Um, now you just click on on the link. But I I want to pull this up mainly so that you can see a couple of things. Remember, Jesus had just taken this field trip through Samaria, and remember, it wasn't a um, he had to go through there to. to to, to get to their place. Most Jews would always go around Samaria. Avoid Samaria at all costs. They were the half-breeds. They were far from God. They were the nobodies. Don't go through Samaria. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of this dotted line region. I didn't bring... Oh, I do have my pointer. Watch this. Kurt. Man, you rock, Kurt. So this right here is kind of the, the Samaritan region. And... Um, it's like my scope. Um, and so, so Jesus had, had, had just come through there and, um, and, and here we are now in, in Cana, and, and uh, Cana is this dot here on the left. That's the city of Cana. That's Cap- Capernaum, right on the, on the coast there. And I bring that up because I want you to just get a, a little visual. He's from the Galilean region. The Sea of Galilee is up there. So he's going back to his, to his hometown where he, where he grew up. Cana, of course, was the place where he did his first miracle. He was at the wedding, and he did the, the water into wine. Todd Bruguette spoke on that. And so people are going, oh, he's that guy. That guy's back in town. That wedding, I remember that. And so it kind of created a little bit of a buzz. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew just what was happening there. And Capernaum, just for reference, is about 16 miles away. So here's an official who comes from 16 miles away, uh, probably by foot, to come and seek out Jesus and to say, man, I'll do, I'll do anything. My son's dying and, and I need you here. As we've mentioned all along, John is the gospel of belief. In fact, the word believe or belief is mentioned almost 100 times in the gospel. And it's just such an important looming part of the book that even when you come to a little narrative story about something going on, you have to keep in mind, why is John including this? Why is this in here? I'm going to rapidly go through these, but you can fill these out in your, in your, in your notes if you'd like. But check this out. Through belief, think about this. This is all from the Gospel of John. I'm not going outside the Gospel right now. This is just John supporting how big of a deal belief is. Through belief, people become children of God. Verse 112, Yet to all who received Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Through belief, people obtain eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Thirdly, they avoid judgment. John 3:36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. That was our memory verse from, from two weeks ago. You avoid judgment. Another thing that belief provides is that you are resurrected. 11.25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. What he's talking there about is the resurrection from the dead. Through belief, you receive the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7, verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Verse 39 says, By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later 
to receive. You receive the Holy Spirit simply through belief. Another one, through belief, people are delivered from spiritual darkness. John 12:46. I have come into the world as the light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And finally, uh, or two more, uh, those who believe are... are uh, one more. Those who believe receive power for spiritual service. For, uh, chapter fourteen, twelve. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So there it is. Belief is a huge deal. It's a central theme to this story even. And to overlook that and to jump right to the narrative, we might miss the whole reason of why God would have preserved this story of all the encounters that Christ had with people in three and a half years for us, for all of time, for believers to be encouraged and strengthened and taught. It's interesting that through belief, all of this is available to us. And yet, Matthew 7:14, Jesus said these words. He said, But the gate is small and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few ever find it. The Bible predicts that we are not going to have an entire nation that just is wholeheartedly after God. The Bible predicts that you will be the oddball in your neighborhood. The Bible predicts that when you stand up for things at work, in your family, perhaps uh, you know, in your school, that you will be the odd man out. That there's this broad way and it leads to death. And Jesus said there's this narrow way of faith there's a life of faith, and there's only a few that ever really find it. Belief is a big deal because belief or lack of it, really unbelief, is the damning sin. It's really the one that gets you in trouble. Don't you realize that any sin, any mess up, any wrongdoing, whatever you want to call it, you are, you are forgiven and you're wiped clean for those who repent and believe in Jesus. Any sin. That's great news for me. That's really great news for you as well. But, but if there's no belief, there's no forgiveness there. It's kind of this starting point. In 1 Peter, Peter's writing this little epistle and he basically says this, add to your faith all these virtues. And he almost breezes by faith by saying this, if you go to add all these virtues, honesty, self-sacrifice, patience, anything, any virtue you add to it, it's sin without faith. It's sin without belief. If you don't have this foundation of belief, you build up all these virtues, but you're on these stilts that the first storm comes, you're just knocked over solid. You can do the right things for the wrong reasons. It all begins with faith. So belief is a really big deal. Hebrews goes on to say this, it says in 11.6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, Satan knows that the seeds of doubt can reap this harvest of death. In the garden, remember, remember the serpent? What does he say? He says, did God really say? Right? He didn't come as a flaming dragon and go, Go this way! Because, you know... Say, uh, Eve probably would have run the other way. Instead, it's just a little slithering seed of doubt. Did God really say that you shouldn't take that fruit? And He does the same today. We're not to be unaware of the devil's schemes. 
The devil's schemes are to just kind of come in and, and give nuanced shades of gray and just begin to plant little seeds of doubt, little seeds of, 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 of trust-breaking kinds of comments. How does Jesus respond to unbelief? I want you just to think for a moment. Just You could look up a few verses. Kurt taught last week about how Jesus is in Samaria and it's this, it's this response, this woman at the well that he meets, she goes into town, says, man, come see a guy who said everything I ever did. Her life is transformed. It says at the end of, of Kurt's passage last week that many Samaritans believed. Now John writing that knows what he's doing. In saying that the Samaritans believed, he's highlighting the fact that the bad guys, those who are far from God, those who don't have a clue about how to be good and religious, are the ones getting saved. They're first in line for eternal life. They're receiving the, the, the power of God. They're praising God. They're ascribing worth to Him, which is worship. And I'm sure to a Jewish ear, this would just be like, this has to be a typo. What? And yet Jesus goes to his hometown where he lived for a long period of time. You'd think that there'd be belief all over the place. Instead, it's just the opposite. And it's a bit of a wake-up call to those of us who've maybe been around church our whole life. Those who've had every opportunity to see the works of God and to say, maybe we would be like those Galileans. We're looking for a show. We're looking for a free handout. But we're missing the real gift of God. Whereas the Samaritans get it. Here's the greatest physician of all time, and he's coming home. And as my title this morning kind of indicates, um, the great physician comes and he longs to heal us. He comes and longs to heal us at our deepest need, our deepest point of, of wounding. And so oftentimes we, we keep it up here. Our wants are a little bit shallow maybe. This man from Capernaum comes to the right person, but he's really kind of seeking the wrong thing. A little bit like a preschooler who's wanting a certain thing and you're going, no, 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 trust me, you want this, but that looks really boring and I don't need that. I need a donut or whatever else. And wants can kind of tend to change. Capernaum's an interesting place. Jesus would actually go later on and live in this city of Capernaum. Capernaum, Matthew 4.13 says, and he actually does many signs there, but by Matthew 11.20, just listen to this. You can write this down and read, and read it later. But Jesus launches into this series of woe to you. If Jesus is saying woe to you, that's not a, a greeting. That's not, hey, a party's coming to your house. That doesn't translate into salvation has come to your household. That means you're in trouble. Woe to you is a bad thing. Jesus says, woe to you. And first he mentions one city. Then he comes upon Capernaum. Listen to what he says. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. High number of miracles should yield, in our minds maybe, high level of belief. But instead, in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Jesus lived in this city, Capernaum. Listen to this. Verse 23 says, And you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. This came true long before we arrived on the scene such that today 
people argue about where Capernaum even is. It's gone. It's been wiped off the map, basically. And Jesus lived there, performed many signs. So we kind of get a little hint here. Jesus, Jesus says here a little rebuke to this man. Will you people only believe if you see a miracle? And you kind of wonder, as you first read that, you go, why is Jesus doing that? Jesus diagnoses this unbelief. But here's what I want to point out to you. All unbelief is not the same. It's not just like there's sickness. There's different levels. There's different reasons for it. And Jesus is going to come in and diagnose this. And we can learn a lot from Jesus' response to people by mimicking it and just going, what are you doing here, Jesus, and why? Let me just give you a few different things. Um, not all unbelief is the same. Here's, here's one kind of level of, uh, of unbelief. One is this idea of lack of exposure. Lack of exposure is this. Maybe there's a person prepared and awaiting revelation, but they just haven't yet been exposed to the good news of the gospel. They haven't yet been exposed to Christ. I would put Andrew and John in John chapter 1 in this kind of a category. Remember John the Baptist shows them Christ, points the way, says that's the Messiah. Their hearts were ready, willing, and able to receive that spiritual truth and to have eyes to see it. They just needed to be exposed to Jesus. And so they got exposed and they immediately went and followed him. Kurt talked to us last week, challenged us last week. There are unreached people groups in this world that God is calling us as His hands and feet as Christians to go be on mission and tell about the good news of the Gospel. Do you know that some of them, all they need is just exposure. They just need exposure to a Christian. That's it. They've never been to a church. They've never been into a Bible. They've never even just been exposed to the good news of the Gospel. That's this idea of exposure. Do you know that they live in our neighborhoods? They, they work where we work. They go to school where we work. They, they work all around us. We bump into them all the time. Here's the catch. You don't know who they are. I don't know if you've ever met someone and you just go, hey, what do you know about Jesus? I mean, maybe you open up with the weather or something, but you get to a point where you just go, hey, what do you know about Jesus? And it's really exciting to me. God gives me a charge of this when they go, mm, I know he's a swear word. And I go, really? I said, yeah, that's true. They use it as a swear word. What else do you know? Nothing else. Those people live all around us. They're all over the place. And so that's why for us to just put our faith in God and say, God, I just want to expose people to the good news that I've received. That's one version of unbelief. Some just need a tiny taste of God's people loving them, both in word and deed, and they're ready to receive Here's a second version of unbelief. It's just lack of information. This is a person who maybe is less prepared and they have to kind of be persuaded. I would put the woman at the well that we looked at two weeks ago in this camp. She wasn't just immediately impressed that there was a Jewish rabbi in front of her. She began to dialogue with him. Remember she had this religious conversation about how to worship and where to worship and on and on. You could tell she had some exposure to it, but she really didn't have... Um, all the information, she, she, she was convinced after she experienced the supernatural and after his declaration, his bold declaration, I am the Messiah. She becomes convinced. I would say this is the person who's heard of church, the Bible, and Christians, but maybe has a warped or inaccurate view of what it's all about. I talk to people all the time. We're about to have some baptisms. I always want to make sure, what do you think baptism is about? Because we attach all kinds of religious jargon and we, we attach all kinds of meaning to things that the Bible says nothing about. 
What do you think church is all about? And just get some interesting answers sometimes. Some people think that this building is some kind of a club for you, the members. I thought of putting a sign out there that like a golf course, that's a public golf course versus a private golf course, we just say public welcome. Because I think there are people who drive by this church and go, huh, I wonder what's going on in there. I wonder if I'm welcome. But that's the truth. They have a warped view of Christianity. Maybe the one Christian they've known was a complete hypocrite. Maybe didn't have the Holy Spirit at all. Wasn't a regenerate person at all. And so they go, that's Christianity. Certainly this is true of uh, people from overseas. I meet with tons of international students. I ask them, I say, hey, you're in a Christian nation. Do you want to know what a Christian believes? Yeah, dying to know. No one's ever told me. All right, well, first of all, let me explain. We're really not a Christian nation in that everything that's here is approved by God. Let's start with that. Let me just start with the Bible. I just began to share with them what a Christian is, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what Jesus stood for, what he didn't stand for. And it can be a really eye-opening experience. Some people just need information. A third level is just perceived lack of evidence. This is a person who's heard accurate claims of Christ, but they desire proof or evidence. I've got people in my life just like this. I know, I, I could articulate back to you what the gospel is all about, but I just don't think it's real. I need proof. I need evidence. And you just meet people there. And you say, okay, let's start to dialogue through some of these things. Let's have the burden of proof be on you for your worldview and why you believe in what you do. Let's dialogue a little bit. Let's talk. Uh, in, John, in John chapter 10, here's another episode of unbelief. The Jews gather around Jesus and say, are you the Messiah? You tell us or not. Here's what he says. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. There are people that you just can tell the gospel to. They just won't believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus said in John 5.36, I have testimony weightier than that of John for the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent to me. Here's what I'm bringing out is that Jesus did appeal to his miracles as proof that he was sent from God. But he didn't just assume that a miracle would immediately translate to belief. Here's why I'm bringing this up. Here's why this is important. Some of you in this room, I am convinced of this, are saying, if I was just at that wedding and I saw with my own eyes that jug of water and I followed it around, I watched it go to Jesus and then I tasted it and I had empirical evidence, then I would believe. You know what Jesus says? Not necessarily. If only I'd seen someone risen from the dead, I would have believed. Not necessarily. Jesus was used to this. He had watched a people of God who had been miraculously saved time and time again. Peon army, huge army. They rout them. They give praise to God. Things are going well. They forget. They don't believe. In Capernaum, here's all these miracles done. Jesus lives there. They don't repent. They don't believe. So there's a fallacy. If, if, if we're waiting for some big sign, some big miracle, if God just wrote it across the sky, then I'll believe in you, God. Then I'll believe this message. Not necessarily is the message. Maybe some did believe. I believe Nicodemus saw some things and it started him on a path to belief. But it's just not necessarily a one-to-one -one correlation. This is the person who witnesses the dramatic, out-of-the-ordinary deliverance from oppression, deliverance from some kind of a healing, and maybe it starts them on a path toward God. But don't feel like, if there's not a miracle, I don't have any power to share the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. So keep preaching the Word. 
The power's in the story. The power's in God at work at that person's life. Finally is this, just deliberate hard-heartedness. This is just obstinate unbelief. This is the person who's already achieved righteousness. They don't need your religion. They don't need the Bible, their, your Bible. They don't need the Gospel. And this is what Jesus, Jesus just came down on these people, to be really honest. This is the person who wants to come and dialogue and, and they don't really want to talk about spiritual things. They don't really want to ask a question. They want to just pick a theological fight with me. And they just want to start just kind of going back and forth. And there's a certain element of this that I, I'm just praying all the time. I go, Lord, where is this question coming from? Does this person just, is this person just obstinately unbelieving? Or is this person lacking information? Does this person just not know what the gospel is all about? I would challenge you to do the same kind of a thing. The person has pride, inflexibility, self-centeredness, uh, talk and debate are just their dominant traits. Not always, but oftentimes that's a person who's just like a Pharisee. They just want to come and, and you know, pick a fight with you. You know how Jesus did, dealt with that? He pointed them to law. He just always went back to law. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. That's just kind of how he went through life. If you watch through the Gospels, that's what he offered. So unbelief is a huge deal. You can see why on the cover I have this idea of an, of an emergency. And just this, this big deal that, that unbelief is. It's a rejection of the saving truth of God. How is unbelief cured in our passage here today? Um, I don't know if you read the Bible sometimes and wonder, Jesus, why did you say that? Why did you go that direction? But sometimes I go, man, that seems a little harsh, Jesus. I don't think I would have said that. But I'll trust that you're God and I'll, I'll try to dive below the surface. And if we were to just look at this healing here, we might get a little bit confused. But when you see the overarching picture of belief and Jesus going right to the heart of the matter, diagnosing this scene as unbelief, and then you see what a dire thing it is to be unbelieving, that's to follow in the path of Satan. That's to lead to your death, to your demise. You see what a big deal is and why this idea of, man, we need sudden action here. But here's what's interesting. Jesus rebukes the unbelief because he knows it's the person's deepest wound, but he goes on to heal the official son anyway. And that seems just like Jesus to me. How he does it is interesting. Look at verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. You know what those words kind of show? They show a couple things about this guy. doesn't understand he's talking to the God who created time and space. Because he wants him to come down to Capernaum physically, right? And he wants him to hurry because my child's near the point of death. If you understood he's talking to God who made all of time and space, he, he, he wouldn't have said those kinds of things. So his faith was small. Maybe he was at the end of his rope. He was throwing out a desperate word like any of us would. Verse 50, Jesus replied, You may go, your son lives. Interesting how Jesus heals. He seems to heal differently almost every time. If he had been there when the blind guy got healed with mud, this Capernaum official may have said, We need to be near mud so Jesus can heal my son. I've got to get my son here because evidently we need mud. And that's the problem. Sometimes we in Christians, we want to mimic someone else's encounter with God. Oh, I guess I need to go through a big traumatic divorce before God will heal me and bring me to repentance. God heals each person, meets each person right where you're at. 
Just take a simple step of belief. That's what he says. That's what he invites you to do. Catch this. The way that he heals this son forces this man into faith a little bit. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 50, Jesus replied, You may go, your son lives. What did the man come down for? He came to bring the healer to his son, 16 miles away. Jesus said, there's something in the way I think Jesus said this, you may go, your son will live. This guy's faith went from desperate, not really knowing who Jesus was. He takes a step of faith when he walks away from Jesus, doesn't he? I guess this must be true. And so his faith, we watch it before our eyes, his faith grows. Mustard seed. Remember? Just the faith of a mustard seed. God will supply the rest. He'll provide the rest. And so as he's going, he's blown away when his people come and say, your son's alive. When did it happen? It's at the exact same moment. Whoa. And the guy's faith, I'm sure, skyrockets. Here's kind of the prescription for us. You and I are trying to mimic Jesus if we're a disciple. That's all it is to be a disciple. Just follow what Jesus does. You know how we can mimic Jesus in this? This is like someone coming to a, a medical physician and you examine them and they need open heart surgery right now. It's an emergency. They're requiring immediate action. But they're asking for antibiotics because they have a little bit of a cold. And you go, look, you need open heart surgery today. Thanks, doc. Give me the antibiotics. I'm good. Now, I know this seems trite, but the healing of the sun, the physical healing of the sun is the antibiotics and the cold. What this guy needed was his soul saved so that he and his whole household could be saved. You know what Jesus does, though? He gives the antibiotics. As he's giving the antibiotics, he's really providing opportunity for the open heart surgery. Here's the application for you and I. As you and I come across people, they may be asking for some sunburn cream. What they really need is open heart surgery. Don't withhold the sunburn cream and say, what you need is the gospel. And until you hear it and receive it, you're not getting any of my sunburn cream. You know what you do? You go off of the sunburn cream, and as you're giving them the cream, you're sharing the gospel with them. That's this hand-in-hand -hand package of serving and loving real, tangible, physical, emotional needs and at the same time offering the truth of the gospel, the very thing that will solve all these other issues that, that, that they want Band-Aids for. And to withhold and to stand back, I think, is hard-hearted and unchristlike. We all know what a prescription is. And I just want to give you three things for kind of a prescription this morning. First is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the starting point this morning. If you haven't trusted in Christ and you are trying to straighten your life out, you're trying to clean up your act, and you really haven't thrown yourself at the foot of the cross and said, I'm needy. God, come in and heal my open heart surgery needs first. That's the starting point, and it always will be. Take on faith, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You don't need to have a Bible degree. You don't need to know the books of the Bible in order. You don't need to have had any attendance pins for Sunday school. None of that. Simple step of faith. Secondly, take Jesus at His word. 
Just take Jesus at His word. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Catch this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. Aren't you glad that it's not based on your faithfulness, but on God's? We just start calling God out on His Word. God, you promised this. Go do a study of the promises of God and just start to claim promises in His life. I guarantee you it won't lead to health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus was homeless, jobless, went around in in problematic situations. Uh, Paul, go read his resume of all the suffering and stuff that went on. It won't lead to health, wealth, and prosperity. It will lead to life. And Jesus said only a few are ever going to find that. Here's the third one. Repeat. Step one and two. Keep on believing. Keep on taking Jesus at His word. You come across a passage and... It says something, you go, is that really what it says? How come no one around me is doing this? This seems like I should be doing this. Take Jesus at His word. And I say repeat because this is a lifelong endeavor. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. I hope at age 60, there are things in my life right now that I find repulsive because I've grown closer into the conformity of the image of Jesus Christ. That's just growth. That's a lifelong process. I want to invite the band up right now. We're about to head into a season of baptisms where we get to see dramatized really this question. I want to put this statement back up that we started with to get our heart and our mind in a right frame of reference to realize what it costs for you and I to be healed. For you and I to be set free and offered life. What would a father do for a dying son? God knows all about that. But there was no second ram for God to pull on when his son was on the cross. He had to go through with it so that payment could be made, so that you and I could live out what we're about to sing from Hebrews. Draw near to God. I just invite you to worship right now, and then we'll be um, having some baptisms in just a moment.